time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting stories and relevant stories to topics that we've been discussing on our agenda this week, including a person who's mentally ill, accused of assaulting two people just hours after being released from jail, and what it takes to finally find one's way into the mental health system. Set this up for us. You're exactly right, and it just could not be more timely. Uh, this is a decision which just came out, and it's a decision uh, dealing with the issue of whether this person um, uh, was not criminally responsible for what he did as a result of a mental disorder. That's the legal issue the court was wrestling with. But as the judge points out right at the beginning of the judgment, uh, this individual, judge says, personifies the all-too-common and tragic case of individuals before criminal courts who are diagnosed with multiple mental health issues and attendant behavioral problems, but for whom adequate and sustained medical treatment is elusive. Uh, and indeed it was. Uh, and it's a case which is sort of akin to the uh, assaults on random strangers. It's a, a very uh, close to what, uh, in fact, occurred here as a result of that uh, elusive medical treatment. This was an individual who had mental health problems originally diagnosed when he was eight years of age. Uh, they started with hyperactivity disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, adjustment disorder, conduct disorder, learning disorder. Then he was later at age 21 in 2013 diagnosed with schizophrenia, attention deficit disorder, polysubstance dependence, uh, traumatic brain injury, uh, on and on it goes. Somebody with this very serious uh, challenges who was just never properly treated in a long-term uh, fashion. And he's somebody who when you look at this background, it becomes, uh, at least to, to my eye, a, a example of why it is so important that people who find themselves in this position, like this is somebody who's dealing with multiple mental health challenges, serious ones, and a connected drug dependency, and often those things go together, right? You yes. have somebody who's suffering from you know, brain injuries and mental illness, and they wind up using drugs maybe as an escape for that uh, from the challenges that they're having. Yes. Uh, and this case is also an example of uh, how the uh, sort of criminal justice system is often not a solution uh, to those challenges. This is somebody who, I, I had a look, there's an online system. He's got a page and a half of criminal convictions uh, throughout his adult life. Uh, and the particular case that this judge was dealing with uh, involved uh, this man. He had been uh, convicted. I, I, the judgment doesn't indicate, but it appears to have been a breach uh, conviction where he was sentenced to 15 weeks in jail, mm. uh, and he served the entirety of his custodial sentence before being released. But as we've talked about before, when you put a person with serious mental illness and drug addiction into jail, in this case for 15 weeks, what you get out is a mentally ill person with a drug addiction. Yes. <laughs> and so out he came, yeah. and the very next day, um, he wound up uh, assaulting uh, his cousin uh, and an elderly neighbor with whom he had no previous um, difficulties. It appears to have been uh, clearly a function of um, uh, his mental health challenges. Mm. Uh, and this will give you some idea of those. Yes. That the accused first began hearing voices and visions of bad spirits as early as age 17 and believed that the devil Lucifer stalked him. He twice carved 666 into his arms, 
as part of these beliefs, later scratching him out with deeper cuts, fearing he would not go to heaven if he wore those marks. He believed that drinking his own urine would keep evil spirits away, and by keeping feces under his bed, he could trap the evil spirits within the feces and then carefully flush them away. Dear. Uh, and so he believed uh, that these voices uh, were telling him uh, that uh, the neighbor uh, was involved with evil spirits uh, and sexually abusing children. Uh, and so um, without any, that's the rationale for an assault, which resulted in cigarette burns, facial bruising, broken jaw, and broken teeth. Um, and so this fellow then goes back into the criminal justice system. Um, and at the start of that uh, process, he was found to be um, unfit to stand trial, which is a concept that will be relevant to the next case that we'll talk about. And that idea is that there's a basic level of mental fitness that a person has to have before the justice system can even engage with them. Like they need to understand things like that's the judge, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and you are in a, you're charged with a crime and they need to be able to like understand what does it mean to plead guilty or not guilty. They need to be able to communicate with their lawyer. This fellow couldn't do any of those things. Um, and so a judge initially found that he was unfit to even perform those basic functions. Uh, and so at that point, uh, he was sent to a secure psychiatric facility where he spent seven months trying to get him stabilized to the point where he could understand those basic things. Uh, during that period of time, he was discovered again to be drinking his own urine and hiding plates of feces under his bed. But eventually... They got him stabilized to the point where he was fit. So he knew those things like that's the judge and this is your lawyer. Those basic concepts so that they could even proceed. And then the decision which just came out was a decision by the judge needing to determine whether this man uh, was criminally responsible for what he did when he heard these voices, Lucifer telling him that he needed to attack the neighbor and the cousin. And so to do that, yeah. the judge heard evidence from two psychiatrists uh, and had no trouble at the end of the day concluding that indeed, no, uh, this man uh, was not criminally responsible. Uh, and the reason there was some issue there, even when you hear that fact pattern and say, well, geez, how could that be any more clear? Um, there is a basic concept that... Um, that concept of being not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder does not apply unless the mental disorder is a disease of the mind and not something which is brought on by involuntary intoxication. Like hmm. if a person just takes a bunch of drugs yeah. or drinks a bunch of alcohol uh, and then does something bizarre, they wouldn't get the benefit of being found not to be sent as a benefit, not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder. Uh, and here, this man, in addition to having these profound um, mental disorders, um, also apparently used some drugs. <laughs> and so the judge had to deal with, well, was his uh, belief in hearing Lucifer telling him he need to attack the neighbor, was that just a function of the drugs he took? Uh, or ultimately, is this man somebody who was suffering from a disease of the mind such that he couldn't determine what he was doing was wrong, right, when he acted yeah. in that way? Yeah. And so that's what the judge had to deal with. And ultimately, the judge concluded that 
Well, yes, it does appear the man took drugs. That was not the cause of his behavior. And so the result of the case is that this man was found to be not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder. Uh, and the judge then referred him to the review board. And what that means is that now, finally, after waiting for all of this to happen, the man will be kept in a secure facility unless and until a review board determines that he's no longer going to be a danger to the public if he's released. And that may be never. But when you read this case, what what's really important about it um, is the clear background and pattern, that page and a half of previous convictions in and out of jail, yeah. spending months or weeks in jail and being right back out on the street. And it really should cause people to think about whether this is what we should do. Do we wait for the person with profound mental illness and drug addiction to attack their elderly neighbor on the orders of Satan? Or should we be doing something proactively? And the proactive response, and there should have been red lights going off all over the place, right? He was previously, it sounds like on the judge's description, in and out of the mental health system, in and out of jails, his whole life, right, as you would expect. Um, And if we had adequate resourcing in that system, this is an example of the kind of person that's going to engage in random stranger attacks. Exactly, yes. Could it be any more clear when you hear the background I've just described? Yes. Uh, And to my mind, rather than doing what we have done in this case and in so many cases, which is having the person cycle in and out and in and out of jails, Mm -hmm. getting no better. If we had the facilities and made applications under the Mental Health Act where there is a place to actually put the person um, to get treatment, um, we could skip the step of having him randomly attack the neighbor. Yes. And instead identify somebody like this, of which there are some people in the community. There just are, yeah. right? We, we don't provide, they're, they're living in tents, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I rather suspect we'll find out at the end of the day that the tragic death of uh, Constable Yang uh, was somebody dealing with somebody like this man. Yeah. And rather than leaving people in tents and waiting until a tragedy like this or like that occurs, we should be dealing with it proactively. And when we're dealing with it proactively, the other thing to remember is we should deal with it not getting angry with the person, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. easy after the fact to get angry because, of course, the innocent elderly neighbor, right? Yeah. But really, you're dealing with somebody who just has no grip on reality, right? Yeah. They think that, you know, Lucifer is telling them to do this as they're carving numbers into their arm. Um, and so we shouldn't deal with them in this somebody in this circumstance in an angry way. Mm. We should deal with it in a way, though, that is proactive and make sure that the public is safe. And that requires money and resources and proactive decision-making, right? You you need to be able to make the decision, and then you need facilities for people to be. And it's not a humane thing to have somebody who's dealing with this kind of profound mental illness just serve their 15 weeks in jail and then released into the community. Mm. It is not a humane thing to have somebody suffering from this kind of profound mental illness living in a tent. Um, And so it is timely and it is a clear example of the sort of fact pattern which we should deal with before there's some tragedy or death 
or serious assault. And we have a mechanism to do so. We just need the resources. Michael Mulligan, I always appreciate the benefit of your knowledge and insight on these cases. We'll continue this conversation coming up in just a few moments. Legally Speaking continues right after this. We continue Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, we were just discussing the case of a man with a, a history of what certainly appears to my eye to be profound mental illness, finding his way into the mental health system at long last. I think that many of us can agree that everyone, including this individual, would have been better off if we had or he had found his way into the system sooner somehow. What's next on our agenda? Uh, next on the agenda is a case uh, dealing with uh, that uh, process that we mentioned in that previous uh, discussion uh, about what happens when somebody is found unfit to stand trial, right? Yes. Uh, and so that decision would be initially made by a, a judge, right, uh, who would, uh, if the judge determines that a person isn't fit to stand trial at the time they're in court, right, it's not an assessment of what was going on at the time of a allegation, but at the time they show up in front of the judge, um, a, a judge, if there is a concern that a person is uh, not able to comprehend things like that's the judge and they are on trial and able to communicate with their lawyer, doesn't even have that basic uh, cognitive functioning, um, there can be an assessment done and ultimately the judge can determine that somebody is unfit to stand trial. And in the, the next case, that's what happened. The judge found that a person who was charged with second-degree murder was not fit to stand trial. Uh, and so as a result of that, uh, the person was uh, put in a secure forensic facility. Uh, and what happens then is that there would be periodic reviews, in this case you're doing it every 12 months, of the person to determine, are they now fit to stand trial? Yeah, that mm. might change. Maybe they get enough treatment so that they're able to comprehend those basic things. Mm. Um, and so this was a case where a person had spent uh, a year in a secure forensic facility after being found unfit to stand trial. Uh, and the review board, right, that uh, made the decision that uh, the person was still unfit to stand trial. They still couldn't comprehend those basic things despite an additional year of treatment. Uh, but the interesting legal issue that arose was that clearly not the person. It must have been the lawyer on behalf of the person, given that they're not fit to even stand trial, mm-hmm. um, suggested that the review board should redact some personal information from their decision. And in particular, personal information relating to the um, medical status of the accused person. Right? Because otherwise, review board decisions are public. Yeah. And so the lawyer said, well, you know, this you should not include all of this uh, very personal information in your uh, public decision that the person is unfit and remains unfit to stand trial. And the review board uh, sort of came out with their response to that was, first of all, we don't think we have any authority to do that. <laughs> uh, and second of all, if we did have authority, we wouldn't do it uh, on the basis that there needs to be openness. Uh, and so the public can see, you know, how did you reach this uh, continued decision that the person remains unfit to stand trial? And so that was the issue that then went to the B.C. Supreme Court. And the B.C. Supreme Court decision, which just came out, um, concluded that the tribunal was mistaken in its finding that it didn't have authority to uh, redact information that might be very private information or indeed information that might uh, impact somebody's right to a fair trial. Uh, however, 
on the facts of this case, there wasn't a mistake made, right? So the decision from the BC Supreme Court will be instructive in future cases telling the review board, yes, you've got jurisdiction, you have authority to redact information from your public decisions, right, on the basis that it might have a you know, profound impact on somebody's privacy interests, um, uh, or, for example, that uh, releasing some information might impact on that person's ability to get a fair trial in the future. But this, there's a strong presumption that the process is an open and transparent one, just like the rest of the criminal justice system, right? Yeah. Um, and just like you presumptively can go and get judges' reasons for their decisions, and anyone can go online and read them to make sure that they're reasonable and fair and made appropriately, there's a strong presumption of that. But the review board is not powerless. Uh, they could, in an appropriate case, make a decision that something should be removed from the public decision to preserve privacy interests uh, or to ensure somebody is going to have a fair trial. Um, so that brings us to the final case on the, the docket for today, yes, uh, which is a, a local Victoria one, which also deals with uh, the issue of keeping information from the public. Um, and it's a case uh, dealing with the tragic murder of Lindsay Buziak, right, the Victoria real estate agent who was murdered while showing a home back in February of 2008. Um, and uh, this was a, an application uh, to um, uh, have uh, some of the investigative material uh, made public. Uh, it's been 14 years. Nobody's been charged. Uh, and so there's a whole series of uh, material. I think it was 33 different or 35 different uh, things for which there's been sealing orders put in place. Uh, and those would be for things like, for example, if the police apply for a search warrant, for example, yes, um, they would have to set out why they believe they have grounds to conduct the search. Um, uh, and uh, unless there's some order made, once that the search is conducted, the public would be able to go and access that. Say, okay, why did you search Bob's house? <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah. Uh, but there can be circumstances where information can be kept secret. Um, and uh, there are 35 such orders in that investigation. 35? Um, and, and so the judge had to determine whether any of the grounds upon which information can be kept secret um, should still apply after 14 years to keep them secret. The reasons information can be kept secret include if the information would reveal the identity of a confidential informant, um, and in this case that could include both confidential informants who are known as well as Crime Stoppers callers. Hmm. Um, you can also keep information secret from the public if it would compromise the nature and extent of an ongoing investigation. I'll come back to that. Um, you can keep it secret uh, if it would prejudice the interests of an innocent person um, or if it would uh, uh, reveal an investigative technique, right, that the police wouldn't want the public to know about. Um, and one of the interesting things that form part of this um, decision, because, of course, this is a case that's had really high a high degree of public interest, uh, particularly here in Victoria, um, is this. It comes from paragraph 108 of the decision. Um, despite the years that have passed, the investigation is very much active and ongoing. There are a number of police officers and agencies involved. It is one of extraordinary complexity involving many witnesses and thousands of pieces of evidence. Wow. 
Those responsible for the murder are violent with little regard for human life. Individuals involved are justifiably afraid. Release of information could result in others being placed at serious risk of physical harm. There is a strong possibility of potential harm resulting from the unsealing of the remaining redactions, and such harm would be serious. 14 years later. Wow. So the and this is a judge has reviewed many of these documents. And so what you can take from that um, is that this investigation is not done. No. Um, it is ongoing. It is extremely complicated. And the judge has made a, a determination here that if this information was not kept secret, that there was a strong possibility of potential harm, um, and that harm would be serious. And there's a concern here about serious risk of physical harm, which suggests that the judge was uh, persuaded uh, on the evidence that they reviewed and the submissions that they heard uh, that this isn't some closed investigation and it is active and ongoing. Uh, and indeed, uh, that there would be physical risk to people, uh, potentially, if this information was unsealed. It doesn't say what that is or who would be at risk, uh, but uh, it does make clear uh, that the investigation is not finished. The judge also found that disclosure of the police investigation theory and techniques being used would undermine the investigation. Uh, and so what you can draw from that Uh, again, uh, is that this is not a closed case or an investigation which is finished, uh, but a case where the judge has determined, uh, based on the evidence they reviewed and the submissions they heard, that this is complex, ongoing, uh, and those things that we talked about as potential reasons why uh, you might keep what is presumptively public information secret uh, are engaged to the extent that there isn't any other uh, a possible remedy here. Uh, it is necessary to keep uh, these sealing orders uh, all in place, the 35 of them. Um, and so yeah, it's a really interesting decision to read uh, from a public uh, perspective as a member of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it uh, is uh, clear that despite uh, the uh, time that's gone by, this is not now a uh, matter which has been concluded or closed up or they've run out of Uh, things to do. It's a case where there is an active, uh, complex police investigation ongoing. Um, And if the information was made public, that could be both interfered with uh, and people could be put in physical jeopardy. Um, And so uh, despite that strong presumption that these things should be open, uh, the uh, conclusion is that they must uh, remain sealed. uh, And the strong implication here is that there may be more uh, more to come. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers Legally Speaking. Thank you for the benefit of your knowledge and insight in all of these segments, Michael. I always learn something new and I get something out of them every single week. And I know that many members of our audience do as well. So it's much appreciated. Thank you so much. I look forward to doing it every week. It's really a pleasure. Absolutely. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. Thank you.